welcome, or welcome back to Season 1 of the Primrose Chronicles podcast, an admittedly mindless diversion out of a time some might say has either gone mad or is mad, and back into a time nostalgically remembered, at least by a child, and later a teen, to be simpler and just a little charming. My name is Marty Young, the creator, producer, narrator, and host of the Chronicles, and generally the central character in these recollections. As this is our ninth episode, I need to once again note that these remembrances of a time long past has their errors in telling. It's not intentional. It's just I've slept a few times since these events occurred, and in their telling and retelling, I might be recalling the embellishments more than the actual facts. Not all the names mentioned in these tales are accurate. I sought permission from many to use their first and family names, and most said yes, with the promise I would not disparage them. A few said no, and in those cases I use aliases. Still others, I have no awareness of how to contact them, and so I've changed their names as well. In the case of family, the young clan is too notorious to attempt any retitle. In the case of those involved in oversight, folks like teachers and church leaders and business owners, they were adults, and they fully can be held responsible for their actions, thus deserving proper recognition. There. Probably doesn't handle any legal entanglements that might arise, but just a warning, you can't bleed a stone. What I most want to say as this storyline opens is, the purpose of this effort is not to offer a historically accurate detailing of the times. Only one Hoosier kid's reflections and reactions to the times which were a-changing. My only hope is that it is enjoyed by a growing listenership and in turn opens a vault of each one's own cherished memories and maybe will be challenged to journal their own for the sake of those coming behind them. Okay, can we now move into the telling of this episode's goings-on? It's actually the second installment of a two-part homage to my school and its instructors from 2nd through 8th grade. Episode 7, Telling Tales Out of School, was dedicated to the primary and elementary teachers who guided my studies or goaded my lack of same until I promoted to junior high, 7th and 8th grade. Episode 9 introduces a few of those of that junior high contingent that I recall as being memorable all these many years later. I've entitled it for cataloging purposes. They also serve who only teach junior high, with apologies to John Milton. Oh right, I forgot. I'm still not ready to move on to anecdotes about 91's junior high faculty. I promised another faithful fan listener, and indeed encourager of this effort, that I would offer some background on school number 91's namesake, Russo McClellan. So here goes. I must admit that earlier in my schooling, it was just easier to say 91 or School 91. But as I became one of the junior hires, and inter-school competitions and activities had us representing as the Fighting Max, I began to investigate who old Russo was and what he did. I had hopes. Walt Disney Presents had done a historical series on the Scotsman Rob Roy McGregor, certainly quite a Gaelic folk hero. In the young adult section of the public library, I'd stumbled upon a biography of William Wallace. You know, Mel Gibson, Braveheart. Could Russo McClellan be another brave Scot? Could that be heritage to the namesake of our dear old school? 
Many schools in the Indianapolis public school system were named after famous people of history and literature, especially those who brought Indiana to the forefront. I had come from James Wickham Riley School No. 43. He was the Hoosier poet. But there were also others in the system. Indiana-born president James Garfield School No. 31. Lou Wallace of Ben-Hur fame, School 107. But also included were other historical figures like William McKinley, School No. 39, William Penn, School 49, George Washington Carver, No. 87. Then there were the American poets, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, 28, Ralph Waldo Emerson, No. 56, Robert Frost, School 106, Washington Irving, No. 14, Celebrity names indeed, so who was Russo McClellan? Spoiler alert, at least to a 12-year-old, hoping the Fighting Macs were so named by the exploits of the school's namesake, but sadly that was not the case. Without giving a lengthy biography, Russo McClellan first was a woman, a teacher in the Indianapolis School District at the turn of the 20th century, known for her love of nature, biology, and botany who encouraged the growth of science in the public school curriculum. She was a longtime teacher at Shortridge High School, later headed up the development of the botany and biology curriculum for all the Indianapolis public school high schools. She was remembered for taking her students on nature walks, dissecting sheep hearts, and hatching tadpoles from frog eggs. A Shortridge yearbook dedicated to Ms. McClellan spoke of her as one who, quote, opened unto us the door of a true fairyland of nature. So much for any hope of Rob Roy or Braveheart. Oh well, our friendly rivals at neighboring School 55, they had Eliza A. Blaker, who was the champion of the free kindergarten movement. Personally, I guess I'll stick with Russo McClellan as one of her fighting max. Freedom! Anyway, within those walls gathered the teaching staff under the administration of the school's principal, Mr. George Mitten, and his sidekick, Vice Principal Mrs. Shoemate. Even as I entered its hallowed halls as a second grader, Mr. Mitten had already been at the helm, and as such, for over 15 years, was already an iconic fixture in the 91 legacy, appreciated by faculty and parents alike, and respected by the students he served. A couple of small bits of trivia, as if this entire podcast series is not considered such. Before opening as a brand new campus, School 91 stood on the northwest corner of 46th and Keystone. I remember it later becoming the site for a chiropractic college. The other tidbit, when School Number 91 was dedicated, it was not named for Russo McClellan until two years later, the article that was in the Indianapolis Star on the front page stated the location as being 51st in Baltimore. Those growing up in the neighborhood would appreciate the information shared by one of their own whose parents attended the old location and she at the new when it was still Baltimore. She did not recall when it was changed sometime in the 40s, but she recalled Baltimore became Evanston, Manlove became Crittenden, and Sanger became Kingsley. Why, I do not know or when either, for that matter. Fascinating, or at least interesting, I guess, but not centrally germane for today's telling. So, 
back to the cadre of teachers who provided the instruction for 7th and 8th grade, as I recall them 60 years later. The academic move into junior high meant going from a single instructor who taught all the traditional subjects to a battalion of teachers, each meeting most junior hires for a 45-minute block for one subject daily. Every teacher had his or her own classroom with bulletin boards and chalkboard diagrams dedicated to that singular discipline. And at the ringing of the bells, followed by chimes which indicated that they were for our passing, not recess or lunch notifications for other parts of the building. That jarring bell heard building-wide, followed by the melodious chimes heard only in our wing, meant it was time to move to the next period class. You had two minutes to get there. Be listening for them as I move from teacher to teacher in this installment. I left off my catalog of 91's faculty in the last episode with Miss Spear in sixth grade. And it's with her that we turn to junior high. Basically because I didn't share in the last episode how the sixth grade school year ended for me. The last day of school had been a half day as always, which meant that when the bell rang at noon, summer was officially upon us. And we all sat on the edge of our chairs, the contents of our respective desks in bags to go home for at least three months. And even if Miss Spear was my favorite, she was authority. And I was feeling rebellious. So, as the second hand on the clock on the wall clicked around the face, I stood. And as it ticked toward the eight, I walked to the door. Marty, sit down. You haven't been dismissed. But without even looking around... I stepped out into the hall, raced down the stairs, reaching the bottom, bolted out the door, as then and only then the bell rang. Even as I fled, I just knew Miss Spear was after me for my last act of insubordination. So I ran from the building, ignoring the instructions of the traffic patrol to walk, and did not stop until I felt safely away from 51st and Evanston. I had done it. Buck the system of rigid, confining rules, shown my disdain for the restrictions. And I was scared spitless, fearful the car of Miss Spear, or worse, Mr. Mitten, would catch up with me and drag me back to the scene of my crime. That car never came. After surreptitiously taking side streets and back alleys, I made it home, fully expecting Mom to meet me in full anger mode, having just heard from the school. For several days, I waited in dread of the phone ringing with a message from my folks that I would be repeating sixth grade for my heinous display of defiance. But no call came. Summer, on the other hand, did come. And then it went. And the further I got into those months of freedom, the more I inflated the telling of my last day of school bravado. Finally, Summer was over, and I returned to School 91 that next fall as a 7th grader. Eager for the new experience that multiple teachers and classes would afford, I went up the steps, the junior high steps, to my classroom, only to be greeted by, you guessed it, Miss Spear. I thought I was dead. I was not. She greeted us all with her usual energy. She had a new name because she had married over the summer. I did not even know teachers did that. Mrs. Elliot, I think it was. She would be our history teacher. And yet, 
She never spoke of the historical last day of sixth grade, and neither did I. Neither would I remember much about her future influence over me after sixth grade. That time had passed, but I had a whole new crop of instructors that caught my attention and thus find their way into today's episode. Where to start? Some I have no stories or even anecdotes to share, but whose pictures have been sent to me, identified, and posted on the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page in its private group, Fans of TPC. I recognize faces, and I'm sure I could credit portions of my pedagogy to their lesson plans, but I got nothing. Instead, I'll just take us around the halls off of which were the different classrooms of the ones that I do remember. Entering the north doors, closest to the alley off of Evanston, you went to the second floor, and at the top of the stairs, just past the landing of sorts, on your left, was Mrs. Barton's science class. I remember her room vaguely, with its usual science charts, jars of chloroformed animals, collections of insects and beetles and grasshoppers and butterflies and moths. Both years we were required to select, construct, and present a science project, selected from a list provided and approved by Mrs. Barton, just probably so there would not be multiple volcanoes. But most indelibly etched in my mind anyway, from her instruction of junior high science, was her requirement that we print everything. A return to the pre-fourth grade form of script that included several weeks of practice and even graded writing assignments. But her emphasis on that primary skill has meant that over the years, while my penmanship is that of a doctor, my printing is almost calligraphic. Is that a word? When I want it to be, anyway. Strike the chimes, we're moving on. If you exited Mrs. Barton's room and went straight down the hall, the first room on the right past the carillon of chimes, you entered Mrs. Samuel's classroom, and across the hall was a bank of windows looking out over the playground, reminding us that we would no longer have recess, but rather gym or P.E. Mrs. Samuels was a creative teacher of language arts. We had the usual book reports written and oral, even some dramatic presentations of literary characters. Of course, less enthralling was the diagramming of sentences and lists of ever more difficult spelling words. But she makes my list of especially recalled instructors because of her weekly approach to current events. She continued Miss Spears' encouragement for us to read the newspaper and in another stimulating way as well. Each week, she divided the class into news teams of five or six, each given an assignment to read the whatever paper they received in their home, the Star, the News, or the Times, and then to select articles, the summary of which we were to share with the rest of the class on Friday. The uniqueness of her approach was that she assigned the article category for us to be looking for, a different one then for each member of the news team. Local and state news, national news, international news, sports business, and occasionally human interest. For the week, you culled the newspaper pages for articles representative of the assigned topic. You selected the biggest stories for sharing, and it was then that the real assignment began. Friday, in Mrs. Samuel's class, 
the room was converted to a news broadcast studio. Team by team came to the front where they sat behind a long desk facing their peers, scripts in hand, passing a fake desk microphone back and forth as they became newscasters for the moment. And the kicker? Your news report, articulately delivered and grammatically correct, also had to be exactly one minute in length. Mrs. Samuel sat in the back with a game timer that she started when you began and used it to count down the 60 seconds, raising her hand when the time had ended. She didn't stop us or interrupt us if we went long. She just took off of our grade for every second we were over. I cannot tell you how many times I practiced my brevity before the very same kitchen clock that I'd used for my multiplication timetables, or even orally before my folks as they timed on their wristwatch. Consequently, I generally nailed it in class. Be the section business, sports, or news. It's ironic how close I could keep to my allotted time back then, when over the years as a preacher I have not been noted for bringing succinct sermons. Oh, wait, do I hear the sounds of the Big Ben steeple? That means it's time to move on again. We'll not stop at Miss Spears' class again, but rather head back to the left than right into Mrs. Walker's class. She taught math daily and art weekly in a room that had heavy wooden two-person desks with no storage, forcing books to be placed at your feet for easy access. The seating arrangement that placed me with another classmate within conversation distance meant that I occupied many locations in the class and had many partners in the hopes of minimizing, if not ceasing, my penchant for chatting. I had never had problem with math before Mrs. Walker. I'd mastered my multiplication tables, long division, story problems, and fractions, probably in no small part to the genes of my father, but she was the one who introduced algebra, and I did not get it. Why problems had to include letters like X, Y, and Z, right along with numbers 1, 2, 3, I had no idea. Algebraic equations plagued me my entire final year of junior high, and the idea of taking algebra as a freshman next year at high school haunted me the entire summer. In actuality, I'm not sure if something just clicked over the summer, or I just had a teacher who explained it in a way I could understand. That would have been Mr. Morgan. But I was back and rolling as a math whiz getting A's at Broderpool. Not certain why, but 8th grade math was almost my undoing. A dropout at 13 was considered. Mrs. Walker was also the sponsor of the Safety Patrol, who hosted the weekly meetings and adjudicated penalties for the charges brought against children from all grades in the school by Safety Patrol members. I think another episode will focus on junior high activities, so more about the patrol, just like the chime ringers, will be heard then. Mrs. Walker was also the guidance counselor for the 8th graders as they selected their path toward graduation from high school. It was in that position that she most disturbed me. One day, toward the end of the term, I sat with her at her desk, and she began laying out on paper the courses that would fill my years in high school and in what order. She began by asking what career I thought I might pursue, believing I might be mocked, or at least dissuaded from my true interests of 
sports broadcasting or radio disc jockey. I expressed a lesser but probably a more acceptable desire of being a chemical engineer like my father was at U.S. Rubber Company. This prompted her to ask where my dad had gone to college, to which I answered, he didn't go to college. Her response, then he's not really an engineer. Now, she was technically correct, but in actuality, my father's role in the development of the tubeless tire for autos had required a major knowledge of chemical compounds and materials. It was just he had not acquired all that in a four-year university degree, but rather on the job. As a result, I begged to differ with her, to which she suggested, the way I heard it anyway, was my dad had lied to me, if that's what he said. I hurried through the selection of courses. At that point, I didn't really care, but I was livid about her comments, and I left for the day. I never saw my dad so saddened as when I recounted Mrs. Walker's remarks, and then he shared how he had to leave Butler University because he and Mom had gotten married, and he had to provide for a new family. And what a regret that was, and why he was determined that I would be the first of the youngs to graduate from college. I have many reasons to be proud of my dad. One I highlighted in Episode 3, Let's Go Find Randy, and others that I'll share in the next episode's Father's Day tribute to my dad. But none made me more desirous of making him proud and showing Mrs. Walker she didn't know one thing about the measure of my dad than that day in eighth grade. Well, once again, I've let our time get away from us. Chimes did not hustle me on, and I still need to talk about some other members of the 91 faculty, so it looks like I've got at least a couple more School 91 installments in me, maybe three. Certainly the classmates, the characters that I walked the halls and attended classes with, need to be introduced to you. Maybe there's one more that needs to be dedicated to the administration and probably another one in which I elaborate on the activities that comprise those two years. Mrs. Whopper and our pranks, Mr. Frank and his paddles, Mr. Pollock in the locker room on the gym stage, along with more on the safety patrol, spelling bees, Friday movie and popcorn celebrations, social dance instruction, sex education seminars, and a variety of other unauthorized activities. Those will probably be interspersed among other episodes that are posting this fall. If some seem more intriguing than others, well, let me know. Maybe I'll bump them to the top of the pile. Until next time, let me just say thanks for allowing me to ramble. It probably kept me from some more serious endeavors in my day. I hope you'll be back when we again open the pages of a story long closed and fondly circle back. Back to when our days were not our own, but we tried to make our own. Days of growth and discovery on and around Primrose Lane, or Primrose Avenue. Blessings. Blessings.